Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, we're joined by Dan Mahoney, executive producer of In Good Hands. So Joe Biden is going to be our new president. And so obviously, as the host of a climate podcast, it's important that we explore what this means across the broader landscape of climate entrepreneurship and solutions. And fortunately, Biden has made sure that one of his four key focus areas in his transition team and over the course of this term and potentially a second one is climate. So in the episode, Dan and I will break down three takeaways from his clean energy plan, investing $400 billion over 10 years, which is twice the investment of the Apollo program, reflecting on legislation from previous administrations to ensure that we get the writing and forthcoming legislation correct. And lastly, some of the concerns from the business community as we think about how do we make sure policy both A, gets us to economy-wide net zero emissions, while making sure that certain businesses aren't disproportionately affected by some of these laws. And before we jump into the episode, I just want to remind everyone that this show is made possible by our sponsor, EIS. EIS, which is short for Environmental Air Specialties, creates one of the industry's most effective air purifiers. So if you want to learn more about what they're about, just click into our episode description and see how you can save $500 on their flagship air purifier. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Mahoney, executive producer of In Good Hands. Dan, welcome back to the hot seat. Thanks for having me. You ready to talk about this climate fund? Yeah, man. Let's jump in. Awesome. So I think the reason why we wanted to do an episode about this, this is probably the most ambitious climate plan we've seen in a presidential campaign to date. And obviously for pretty apparent reasons, it's become sort of the forefront of policy discussions. And I think we both thought that it was really important to tear this apart piece by piece, see what it means for the future four years or beyond of climate and how it factors in. And so I know that you were looking at the plan and going through some of the details, and I was just wondering what your takes were on some of the proposals in the climate plan. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, what I appreciate most about a Biden W is he's already stated publicly that climate is one of the four focus points of his transition team starting day one. And if you go to JoeBiden.com, you can see exactly what are these nine key elements that make up his broader clean energy plan. And it works backwards from this top level goal of being economy-wide net zero emissions no later than 2050. And one of the things that is part of that initiative is this idea of developing rigorous new fuel economy standards aimed at ensuring 100% of new sales for light and medium-duty vehicles will be zero emissions. And so I highlight this one specifically because the second an executive tries to impose some type of policy initiative that has these kind of wide-ranging trickle-down effects. He's saying that, all right, transportation is one of the worst emitters of carbon across the entire U.S. economy. And if you want to continue to produce cars, they're going to have to follow these standards. But what we found, and just to reference another data point, um, 
Back in um, the old oil embargo during President Ford's administration, there was an oil embargo. And what he said, all right, because access to oil is becoming increasingly scarce, I'm going to implement a new policy that says, all right, car manufacturers, we want to double fuel efficiency from 13 miles per gallon to 26 miles per gallon. And on the surface, this feels like a godsend. Uh, right? If you can double fuel efficiency, you have energy dependency, and we'll be all in well. We'll ride this oil embargo into the sunset and we'll be a-okay. The problem with this policy is that because he implemented this fixed or cap goal, we plateaued for roughly 25 years. And so just the, if I were to bottom line it, as Joe Biden and his team thinks about implementing effective policy, they should learn from the from President Ford's administration and say, what is one law that incentivizes continuous improvement, right? Is it um, X percent improvement year over year forever? Is it, it just needs to be fully electric by year X? But wh- whatever it is, the gesture and the motion is directionally accurate, but The team just needs to be super cognizant about the verbiage they put into that bill such that every single year, emitters are incentivized to get better and better. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to get into here. The first being we've seen an initial climate push out of the pandemic from California that basically just said, you know, here's a date and by then no more internal combustion engines can be sold in California. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the trade-offs of A, going with this set target of let's fix it this way, or going through an incrementalist approach of X percent over a year for the Mm -hmm. next decade or 20 years. And the other thing around that I find pretty compelling is a presidency at max will last eight years. And it's very rare that we see contiguous, you know, parties in the White House. And so Mm -hmm. what is the best way to sort of shape these policies, knowing that you might not be there in four to eight years? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I think as a counterexample from the previous point, I'm going to borrow this from Harvey Hall. That's where I heard that initial example, a TED talk he had with actually John Dewar a few weeks back. It's exceptional for anyone interested in seeing how two bosses talk about the future of climate solutions and smart policy. But his interesting counterexample to implementing effective policy is coincidentally also takes place in the state of California. Governor notices that, again, emissions happen in great amounts in buildings, right? The materials that we use, how exactly they're built from the ground up, roofing, insulation, windows. And so... What he did was implement a thermal building code that required developers to hit a certain amount of thermal regulations year over year. And what happened was every single year since the year that he implemented this policy, roofing got better, insulation got better, right? So we had to use less power to heat our rooms, to cool our rooms. The, the list goes on. And now... Um, Looking back, comparing the state of buildings in California today to pre-code, 
buildings today in California are 85% more energy efficient than they were pre-thermal code. And so just to bottom line this piece and what the recommendation would be for a Biden administration is even though best case scenario, the administration is around for eight years, you can still implement policy that incentivizes continuous improvement every single year and assuming that it's written properly, effectively, eight years is a lot of progress. Mm-hmm. So again, if you want to take worst case scenario, if you were to unwind something of that nature, ideally, forward momentum, that gravitational pressure is so great that you've already moved the industry towards a, a different set of defaults or standards. It's similar to just what Tesla has done. You can say whatever you want about the company, but there's no denying that the weight of Tesla has pulled the entire industry into electrifying their entire fleet um, across the board. And so that's how I would answer it. Regardless of how many terms Biden lasts for, he can still implement policy that incentivizes continuous improvement year over year. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up. And it, it makes me think of an article I read in Time that was with Tom Steyer, who is a Democratic presidential candidate and is now part of shaping some of these Biden policies. And one of the things that he noted is that a lot of the way that they're approaching this solution is not necessarily through a legislative approach and not necessarily through executive orders, but rather through the executive branch using Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Energy, all these things. And a lot of these administrations, save for their department heads, are pretty static through time. A lot of these are just governmental organizations. And so setting policy or setting directive through those organizations does allow for a more lasting effect, I'd argue, Mm -hmm. in pushing climate policy. I think also, and this is something that we've harped on through 60 plus episodes of the show, is that climate is good business. And so I think that if you pave the way and maybe tip the scales, put a finger on the scales in some directions, you can start to set some new markets in motion. Let's double click into that, Dan. What did you find interesting under the umbrella of incentivizing or tipping the scale to climate entrepreneurship? So one of the biggest things from the Biden campaign plan that I saw was that they're going to push the costs onto businesses. It's through rolling back tax cuts. It's through rolling and implementing climate policy where businesses are responsible for the carbon emissions that they produce. And what this sounds like to me is based on the Obama administration and also what we see in California, which is obviously on the forefront of most climate issues, Mm -hmm. is a cap and trade system. And cap and trade markets, I think, are one of the more fascinating ways to dealing with climate, as opposed to, say, a carbon tax, is that they create a secondary market, which has a price set per ton emitted of carbon. And to picture what a ton of carbon emitted, you'd probably have to drive about 2,400 miles in a car. So one ton of carbon has a price. I believe currently in California, it's around $17. And so companies, when the cap and trade markets are start, are given an amount of carbon that they're allowed to produce. So it's based on what you produce, and that's sort of allocated. And so we say U.S. carbon economy has to be this big for us to continue producing to protect our economic growth. But we can set these targets for reduction. And also, 
if you overproduce, say, whatever you're allotted, you now have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. What this also does is say you have a company and you figure out how to cut your emissions by 20%. You can take that 20% cut, take your excess credits and trade them back to maybe a larger company or a more polluted company and make extra cash on the side. So now there's financial incentive business to business in this market. But also there's a ton of carbon recapture projects from trees, from agricultural practices to even on Planet Money, I heard about a story about two guys who drive around the country picking up canisters of Freon from auto repair shops and paying the people who give them the Freon, paying the companies that safely dispose of the Freon and still make money by selling these carbon credits. So there's all these sort of secondary markets that develop. And I think that's probably the most sort of future looking way to deal with our carbon problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I probably lean in the bullish camp more than bearish, especially with all the tailwinds that we have at our backs with big companies already making historic commitments to neutralizing the footprint they've accumulated over the lifetime of the company. There's a lot of pressure if you are in the Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 camp to start taking part in the solution, taking responsibility in your footprint. If we were to even double click a bit further, one of the challenges that I'm interested in seeing how it unfolds is the piping, the plumbing that connects the broader policy initiative to uh, company level audits. How do you actually continuously audit and monitor what a company's emissions are in a way where there's no conflict of interest between the parties? Will this be a a three-letter government institution that is tasked with running this? Are these going to be third-party private companies that become just etched themselves out as the new accounting firms for the new economy that are tasked every single year the same way you do your taxes. You got to do your carbon tax of sorts, see if you have credits. But I don't know if – have you done any reading or research around how this materializes or plays out? No, I, I haven't done a ton of research into some of the mechanics of the piping here. I know in California, it's a cap and trade system. There's some interesting stories that I've read around. There's certain fluorocarbons like Freon, where basically they found that in implementing some of these standards, it actually drove up emissions because companies were making more because there's a secondary market on the tail end. And so there's regulatory bodies, these three-letter government institutions that you talk about, that will have to monitor the effects of the policy on global climate. But I'd imagine that a lot of these accounting firms would either be in-house or outside third-party companies, because that's how it works with pollution. Mm-hmm. There are these secondary or, or third-party companies that are involved in testing, implementing solutions, and tracking sustainability and pollution standards and all sorts of standards. So I would imagine that there's also a business created in that where we can now be tracking carbon as third-party companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Dan, I wanted to uh, talk about another point of Biden's plan I found super interesting. 
It's point number four around making a historic investment in clean energy and innovation. So just to drop down what that means in, lay, in lay, layman's terms, Biden said he's going to invest $400 billion over 10 years as part of broad mobilization of public investment in clean energy and innovation. And just to put that into context, investment is twice the investment of the Apollo program in today's, in today's dollars. And the Apollo program is the same program that put a man on the moon. Uh, he's also going to establish ARPA-C. It's a new research energy. It's a, it's a new research agency focused on accelerating climate technologies. Sandra from Just Salad harked on a similar idea on one of our recent episodes where she talks about creating a CDC for climate. And maybe it's not exactly apples to apples here, but I, I like, and now that I can see, ARPA-C is super interesting. We need a dedicated body focused explicitly on funding moonshot research and technology break- breakthroughs across the U.S. economy. Like we discussed early in the episode, climate is the next gold rush. Not only is it a great opportunity to have impact on the world and the world needs it, it's just an amazing opportunity to have immense outcome potential. And it's just one of the rare cases where we have entrepreneurs, smart, ambitious people have the ability to check off both of those boxes. And I don't know if you've put any thought into this, but how do you spend $400 billion? Like, where does the money go? (laughs) You know, how do you even tell? Again, I, I think the gesture and the tension is much needed and I'm super interested in it, but boy, oh boy. Where do you even look to start investing and putting that dollar and resource to use? I I, I think that it dovetails a little bit. And we, we talk about. Let's talk about climate's brand on the face of it. Right mm-hmm. now, it's this existential threat that we just we feel creeping temperatures. We're told by scientists that this is a huge issue. And I think in America, due to the geographic location on the globe, it is less felt. Obviously, we see wildfires. We see we're on Tropical Storm Theta, or I think it's now Hurricane Theta. Like mm-hmm. we've, we're going into the Greek alphabet again near the end of it for storm season. Like we're in trouble on this. And when we talk about spending $400 billion and we look at what government does to spend money, split it down the middle and we say CDC for climate. Where's the DOD for climate? Climate is as much of a threat as a foreign nation to the sanctity of our nation. We're so worried about a refugee crisis when we're actively contributing to the next 20 years of refugee crisis. There's going to be places in the world that you cannot live anymore. And those people are going to have to go somewhere. So take the DOD approach. These are DARPA-level projects to solve climate using top MIT scientists all the way through Caltech, you name it. Mm-hmm. Invest in those people, but also the way that we fund first-time homeowners, the way that we fund small businesses could be oriented towards climate in larger amounts or with more forgiving loan ideas. I, I just have an idea. Dan, can I just can I pitch you this? Yeah. This, this is go. like raw, so listeners, don't hate <laughs> on me if this is a terrible idea, but I feel like a, recor- a recurring talking point over however many presidential elections is this notion of offshoring, 
More and more companies are moving their operations offshore. Taxes are too high. The cost of labor is much lower. And so Trump, he did how many press conferences where he would stand with the CEO of a, of a big company and say, we're this historic announcement opening a new factory here in upstate Texas or middle right outside Detroit, Michigan, whatever it is. And so this to me feels like one of the Again, this is like just to recycle the same narrative. It actually feels like one of the few cross-aisle bipartisan opportunities to help incentivizing – help incentivize reshoring. So move operations from China wherever possible back to the United States, right? What happens as more and more companies produce – in China, and then freight their product over oceans, and more and more companies start sprouting up and doing the same thing, this is terrible, right? This means more shipping freight, more emissions, and so a rather unsophisticated solution here is doing whatever it takes to move production stateside. Like, obviously, huge economic boon, new jobs, blah, blah, blah. But if you just want, if we want to stay right inside of the climate argument lane, imagine all of the emissions you can offset or fully neutralize by removing sea freight and air freight from the equation entirely. And obviously there is a need for governmental approach or legislative approach that takes, incentivizes or pushes companies to to share profits with their workers in some way or another that we need to produce higher wages but one of the more interesting things is that you pay somebody a a manufacturer a wage in china and whatever that is per hour with a cap and trade system in the reduction of using cargo for emissions you can now use those carbon credits to subsidize the wages for an american worker who needs to make more so uh, this is why i think like a carbon tax is a fine idea. And like the big idea around a carbon tax, in my opinion, is basically you, you make things cost the amount that they actually cost. But a cap and trade system is, I think, more in line and maybe more politically or socially acceptable in America based on our culture mm-hmm. in that it's just a way to regulate markets in a way that's itself regulated by the market. Mm-hmm. There are some pitfalls to a cap and trade system that I'm sure... We can get into if we see that proposed later on in the actual Biden administration. But Mm -hmm. it's a huge opportunity here to look at the places where we're spending money that doesn't actually exist. Like carbon costs money. Yeah. Honestly, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to all things cap and trade. Honestly, you've been a great teacher of mine. I've been a student of yours (laughs) as we've riffed on it over the last year. My big concern as a business owner is that the the core problem with cap and trade is that there are some companies that have enough margin to account for a system of that nature, but there are plenty of industry categories that suffer purely because it's going to be really hard to bake in added cost to a product that customers have historically paid very little for. And one side of the coin is, you know what? 
maybe that's the macro condition that knocks it out. I think that, climate being expensive is absolutely a misnomer. So like coal, gas, uh, natural gas and oil. I, I don't know the exact stat, but the numbers I remember, I think it's about $29 per kilowatt hour or, mm-hmm. you know, per mega kilowatt hour for wind energy alone, $26. So based on market forces alone, shouldn't we be assuming that a hundred, at least a hundred percent of our new investment in energy should be the cheaper option. Mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. that's true because it's subsidized. And I also think that, yeah, there are large cap companies that could afford this and small cap companies would struggle with paying for their increasing emission standards, but they can also make more money by decreasing their emission standards. And a lot of those things can come cheaper. And the second that you now have a rolling market, there's also companies that can move into the business of removing carbon in any way, shape or form. We talk about our farmers being heavily subsidized to have subpar practices when it comes to climate. Now they can be incentivized and subsidized to pursue regenerative farming. Mm -hmm. We can move cattle back into the cornfields of Iowa. We could cut down on soy production. There's all these different sort of imbalances that are created through government policy that can be fixed in a climate slanted way that keeps the markets as stable as they are. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you in many ways. And just for the sake of being a devil's advocate so that the listeners can hear my perspective as someone who clearly cares about climate. <laughs> I host the show and I also run a games company. And I think games is a really interesting opportunity for me to explore what my concerns would be. And I I will be fully transparent around the cost structure, the economics, so that that the listeners can hear, hear how potential future scenarios would affect a business like games versus other ones. So Incoherent sells for $20 retail. We produce the vast majority of our volume in China. The reason why is that we can produce tens of thousands of units and send them here for roughly $3 all in. So that brings it down to, let's say, $17. When you sell on Amazon, all right, and you fulfill with Amazon and you store your product in a warehouse, you're taking out another five, six dollars. Then build in the cost of labor. So you probably have a team that you pay salaries to. You probably spend on Facebook, Google, TikTok, Twitter, marketing dollars. And so as you start to work your way down the economics, how much profit is the company left with? And so you can say, all right, what if instead of producing in China, right? Because now you're setting the product over cargo, or you're shipping it over a plane, you just produced it locally so that you be, you are under or you're within your carbon threshold. The problem with that is now instead of producing every unit for $3, it costs $8 and change. And yes, you end up coming under the carbon threshold and maybe you can actually sell some carbon credits back right, to other companies that end up going over their threshold, like the big dogs. But 
you can see for a company like games where the average ticket item for a product is low, $20 and under, there's just a lot less leeway at Delta for these companies to work with to still have operating sustainable businesses that can pay and hire people, spend on marketing so that they can sell the product. So I just wanted to give someone just a glimpse into my reality as to how policy needs to be cognizant of different types of economies, many economies and different categories of business. And so just to circle back to the very first part of this conversation is how do you get the writing, the text in that policy so that it doesn't disproportionately hurt certain types of businesses while letting a few out the other end without any scar tissue. I don't have the answer to that, but as someone who is a very overt climate activist that also runs a profit incentivized business, how can we check off the boxes for both groups of people? That's all I'm saying. I don't have the answer, but I just wanted to bring this up to give people like a lens under the hood as to like how someone like myself is thinking about it and the challenge that administrations have in getting the text in the policy. Yeah. And I think that to leave off on a a note, and I think we're getting close to wrapping up, but what's the number? Maybe I'll take the time to look it up. But what is the number on like how many companies actually produce 90% of all carbon emissions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, isn't it like 50 companies? It's a list. Of, it's, it's something under 100. Uh-huh. 50 or 60 companies that produce 90% of the world's climate emissions. Those companies make maybe trillions of dollars. And so there has to be a way that basically says, here's the cost of carbon and you make it all. So you got to pay for it. Because I think there's hope for if you move that game production onshore, that the per ton price of carbon allows that $5 increase in unit price to be completely palatable. Maybe in a good carbon market that as the cap goes down, the cost of carbon goes up. That's a sustainable trend. Mm -hmm. And just one example is 2013 to 2018 per EDF, who's a, a company, let me pull up their actual name, a company that instated California's, it's the Environmental Defense Fund that made California's cap and trade system and designed it. 2013 to 2018 in California, the cap on carbon decreased 10%. So we saw a 10% decrease in carbon production in California. Meanwhile, their economy boomed. And so there is evidence that cutting carbon does not cut growth. And I think, like you say, there's going to be nuance in every single case. And I'm excited to see what a Biden administration does put forward on climate and how private industry reacts to that and how private industry grows with that. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the common trends in American politics is that once certain complexes in our economy intertwine with policy can't go away. We see this even with the Affordable Care Act, which is currently up for Supreme Court review, but... It's been a very unpopular policy to repeal because the second that the business worked or the math worked and people had healthcare, it's very hard to take that away. And so if people do have cleaner air, cleaner water, and their price at the grocery store, their price at the pump or whatever it is hasn't changed, 
then it's going to be very tough to pull away from a lot of these climate policies and embracing that, I think, is going to be important. Mm -hmm. Dan, all right. For the listeners, bottom line it for us. What is the thing that you're most excited about and what is one thing you're most concerned about? I think the most exciting thing around the climate change plan from Biden is a recognition of something like the Green New Deal. And the reason why I say that, even though it's only the skeleton for this, and there's some parts of it that I don't necessarily agree with, America, especially in its current state during the pandemic and what it's going to look like post-pandemic, is in need of a new deal. Infrastructure is crumbling. There's roads and bridges that need to be built. We need a modern power grid. And we need a future-focused country. And I think that climate is absolutely the correct vehicle to, or the correct lens to be looking at those problems. Mm-hmm. And so investment at the scale that Biden is proposing in the $1.7 trillion range, increasing over years, setting a target for 2025 and beyond is absolutely the correct way to be looking at this. What I'm most concerned about is that there isn't, enough specifics on the table now this isn't in legislative form it's not in executive order form it's not even in department policy form there's still so much that can be changed and like you said like a single word or a a single phrase can change the 10-year 15-year trajectory of a lot of these policies so it's waiting with bated breath i'd say love it dan I don't think we got anything else to do besides tip our hats <laughs> to each other. Listeners, thanks for sticking around. If you want to learn more about Biden's plan, uh, you can go right on his site. It's JoeBiden.com. The actual like backlink is nine key elements of Joe Biden's plan for a clean energy revolution. I think if you just type in Joe Biden climate, it'll be like the first link that appears in search results. Dan, thanks. Thanks for coming on and giving us your hot take and all the above. Thanks. Hopefully we'll do this soon with some real policy. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin. Or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again, and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.